I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Chips, the soccer podcast from Vice Sports. My name is Aaron Gordon. I am a staff writer here in the U.S. office of Vice Sports. Well, the Brooklyn office. We have several offices in these United States. Joining me on the line is Will McGee, who is not in these United States. He is in London to give us the London perspective of soccer, I guess. Will, how are you doing today? I'm fine here in London, only office in the UK, as far as I know. Everyone here is well, cheerful. That must be nice. Nobody has been well and cheerful in this country for some time, so I'm jealous. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to contradict you on that, obviously. Yeah, no, America's in a terrible state. Thank you. <laughs> Why do we always get 30 seconds in and then we end with, wow, everything's just terrible? Like, we, we don't even make it like a minute into the show before just depressing everybody. Will, say something like, let's let's start this off on a better note. Let's not end it there. Uh, say something uplifting or happy. Um, I mean, I'm going to struggle to say anything uplifting or happy, to be honest. Those are not two adjectives that anyone would associate with my personality. That was beautiful, Will. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I'll just get a quick story out there so that we don't launch into soccer talk with that. My bike was stolen on Friday, which sucks. I had it for six years, but, you know, I I mourned it, and then I moved on. I bought a new bike, and I love this new bike. It rides so smooth. It's a a really great bike. It It was totally affordable, and I'm feeling pretty good about that. I'm happy with my new bike. I mean, I'm sad for the old one, but you know, it was it was time to move on anyways, and so I'm feeling much better about that. So that's my uplifting note for today. I find that quite poignant actually. Like what's happened to the old bike? Well I don't know. Somebody stole it. Like <laughs> I don't know what they I know, did, but right? I, I want to know the rest of that story, you know. The the untold stories are what matter to me. Okay, well we will tell the untold stories here on Chips episode four. Actually, the first thing we're gonna talk about is very, very told, very told stories. It's actually the most told stories of any soccer week cycle of press coverage. Just generally speaking, it seems like after every single week of action, there are like the two or three things that everybody's talking about. And of course, we often talk about them on the show. But we're going to talk about the talking points to start off here because 
This week had some very odd ones, like ones that you don't normally see about, like, the ref or a call or a goal or whatever. There were two specific ones that were just really weird to me. The first was the Diego Costa saga or whatever the hell is going on there, where I guess he had a row with Conte and they fought and Conte told him to, like, get the fuck out and go to China and Costa was like, okay, I will, and then, like, stormed out or something. I don't know. I like to imagine that's exactly how it went. Like, you know, when a parent is like, well, why don't you just leave them? And the kid's like, fine, I will, and then runs out of the house, and the parent's like, fuck, where the shit is that kid gonna go now? (laughs) So maybe that's how it went. I don't know. Costa didn't play. Chelsea still won, so it didn't really matter. There's also the really weird thing that happened with Alexis Sanchez in Arsenal where they were winning 4-0 against Swansea. There's 11 minutes left in the game. Wenger does the very sensible thing of subbing off his best and most important player uh, with 11 minutes left in a pointless game so that he didn't risk injury. Makes perfect sense. We all know Alexis loves to play and hates getting subbed off. So he came off the field, he like dropped his glove and then kicked it and then put on a jacket and went and sat on the side of the bench and hunched over for about 10 seconds. And this became a huge deal, apparently. Uh, I don't, I I get why we talk about, why we're talking about the Costa thing, because that's, like, pretty interesting that, like, clubs within themselves are, you know, like, using China as, like, a, a weird, like, motivational slash negotiating tool. The Alexis thing makes no fucking sense to me. No sense at all. I don't know why anybody is talking about it. I don't know why it's even getting any lip service at all. So these are like two different, but yet, two different things going on, but yet they're still like kind of these talking points. And so, Will, I I guess my question to you is like, how do we sift through the good talking points and the things that are worth talking about versus the bad ones? And what can we do to make sure that Nobody covers the dumb ones like the Alexis Sanchez glove kicking thing. I suppose the reason that the Sanchez one has gained any form of traction is just because of the underlying transfer rumors and also negotiation talks and contract renegotiation, all the stuff we kind of touched upon last week, in that people are looking for kind of micro signs of him being unhappy or happy. Basically, people are trying to read his emotions and intentions through incredibly small, probably insignificant incidences. So yeah, I know what you mean. It certainly is a bad talking point because it's essentially a confected drama based on, you know, a few carefully and strategically taken screen grabs and then yeah 10 seconds of footage as you said i suppose it just ties into the greater debate about money and about you know it's kind of similar to costa in a way in that basically what people are looking for in all these debates is signs of a player's intentions or their future plans whether or not you can read anyone's future plans into how their behavior on the training ground or bust ups with a manager or their behavior on the bench after being substituted is highly, highly contentious. So I don't think anyone is going to quality control these things. It's basically just up to serious journalists, I guess, to make sure that we end up... Well, if we are going to talk about these talking points, then we have to analyze them in a kind of self-aware manner rather than engage in what is pretty much a confected debate about is Alexis Sanchez happy at Arsenal because of 10 seconds of misery on the bench after being substituted, you know? I'm probably one of the least biased people when it comes to talking about Alexis Sanchez because he's my favorite player and he has two wonderful dogs whom I love very much, even though I've never actually met. Obviously, I'm going to defend him like pretty much no matter what. 
but also this strikes me as a particularly dumb story that has emerged. And I was like tweeting angrily about this afterwards because it just bothered me so much. The thing that bothered me the most was how disingenuous it was because the camera, like even the live international feed showed him like, yeah, he had his head down and his hood up and looked kind of dejected for like, literally it was maybe 10 to 20 seconds. Then afterwards he lifted his head up pushed back his hood, sat on the bench like a normal player, and watched the rest of the game. And the camera cut to him a few times, and he was sitting there completely normally. So it wasn't even an honest talking point. It was very tabloidy, like, you know, take a still photo and then blow it out of proportion, essentially. It seemed even more disingenuous than most disingenuous talking points. And so I wonder if this is just kind of like where things are going or if that's just kind of how things always are. I mean, I think the tabloid angle is definitely right, as in the tabloids in England definitely drive much of the narrative of these kind of stories. And like you say, you know, that trying to create some sort of emotional justification for every single little thing when actually it can often be fairly insubstantial. I I mean, I think... Alexis is an interesting character and there maybe is something to read into this, but not what has been read into it in the, he seems to me like in his playing style and also his kind of just general demeanor, he is quite a hyperactive, almost manically active guy. So to see him react in what is essentially like, it's a bit, it's kind of a weird way to react on being substituted. It's really not the end of the world. I don't think you can read anything into that about contract negotiations or whatever, but I think you can say that he certainly, as a character, is a man who is, you know, bouncing off the walls with energy, almost to the point of like, it's, I mean, I thought that was almost... And well, it was it was an overreaction, but also in a, you know just even the small reaction that it was was an overreaction, but also a kind of I don't know just an indicator of quite how just he's just pinging all the time. He just wants to play. He loves football. So I guess that's what it tells you. But nothing more than that, really. Yeah, and it's like we didn't learn anything about him from this. This just confirms exactly who we thought he was, and it also strikes me as just this ridiculously ironic juxtaposition from how the English press discusses Mesut Ozil's general demeanor in that they feel like he never cares enough or never seems to care enough and never really, like, emotes about anything. So you basically have these two extremes, and they're criticized for being on completely opposite ends of, like, the emotional spectrum, and it seems like the press is only happy if a player is right in the middle, like, right in that sweet spot where, like, they care sometimes but not always and never care too much but also care enough. You know, it's just, like, I can understand why players would become completely absolutely fed up with the president in a very short amount of time in England. It would be pointless to try and second guess the press in footballers' behaviour because really people are always looking for more content and more stories and more things to write about on an hourly basis, especially at tabloid publications. So, I mean, essentially anything they can latch onto and kind of sell to an audience in a clever way, they will do. So, yeah, you can be incredibly nonchalant or incredibly hyperactive and either one can be turned against you if it suits a certain narrative. So, yeah, there's there's no point. There's no point kind of reading too much into it, I don't think. And there's certainly no point of footballers trying to engage with the logic of that kind of story, because basically those stories are self-creating and self-generating, I think. Speaking of engaging with the logic of the English press, the English press is having a lot of fun with Pep Guardiola lately, given that Manchester City is... I think it's fair to say they're struggling at this point. I mean, they lost, what was it, 4-0 to Everton over the weekend, which, I mean, 
Going into the game, I thought Everton had a real chance to win. They seem like a team that could fare well against City, especially when City isn't doing well. And their back line is really in shambles. They didn't have Fernandinho, and Lukaku is really, really good and doesn't get enough credit for being one of the best strikers in the world. What was it, a couple of weeks ago that they lost 4-2 to uh, Leicester, and it wasn't even that close, and Leicester is bad this year, or at least not good. So... I mean, I'm on the outside looking in here. Will, get me up to speed on, like, why the English press just has it in for Pep and there is so much schadenfreude going on right now. Obviously, it was kind of a disproportionately bad result on the weekend, so it created some disproportionate criticism, I think. Man City are struggling a bit, and they are fifth at the moment, I think, outside the top four, which is obviously notable. But I don't think, realistically, they're going to stay that way until the end of the season, so how much they are struggling is difficult to judge at the moment. In terms of Pep, I mean, I think he's been given quite a fair chance, actually. I don't think people want him to fail necessarily, but what people do seem to want is for him to recognise that the Premier League is somehow elevated above other leagues or that it's somehow special and should be singled out for special treatment. So I think after the match, he was asked, and he seems to have been asked this quite a few times, he was asked whether or not, compared to the Bundesliga and La Liga, you know, is, is the Premier League, you know, does it have a different style of player? Is there something going on here that you haven't quite figured out? And he kind of, he really gave it short shrift and, kind of, and almost dismissed the question before it was even finished, I think possibly because he's heard it so many times. And yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, football is football. And if you have the, you know, the right principles in, in the way you play football and the right personnel, you're going to be successful. I think Pep probably knows that after like a prolonged stint of success at Barcelona and then, despite some small criticisms, the same at Bayern Munich. So it's very weird. I think that it comes back to, again, possibly a sense of kind of cultural superiority in terms of football in England and the Premier League. And I think a lot of people like the illusion that the Premier League is the hardest league in Europe, the toughest league in Europe. And, uh, you know, if a manager, even a managerial genius or someone who's recognised as such comes over here and, you know, wants to try his hand in the Premier League, well, you know, this is, this is, these are special circumstances and this is a particularly tough league. And it's kind of like, I don't know how much that's a fallacy, how much that is just us wanting the Premier League to be the best. I mean, I suspect there's a strong element of that and that actually La Liga and La Bundesliga, there's nothing that you, that you can't learn in those leagues that won't help you that will help you be successful in uh, the Premier League. So, yeah, I think there's certainly a, there's certainly been a sense of kind of superiority in terms of the Premier League and people wanting, almost wanting Pep to be caught out by just how, you know, tough and frenetic the Premier League is. So, yeah, that, that's how I would read it, I think. I've never, I mean, I guess I understand this need to have Pep, like, basically, like, affirm to English people that, what they already think, which is that the EPL is the best and most competitive league in the world. And it seems like if they get that from Pep, then they basically can claim it is true. Like, the the debate is over, right? That's the idea. Like, Pep is the worldly, global soccer traveler, the the wise man, and, you know, the, he would... He's, like, the ultimate authority on the matter. I mean, I just, like... I don't understand why they need Pep to say it, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I completely agree. I mean, I think it's... Uh... It's almost an affirmation, isn't it? You know, if Pep Guardiola finds it hard, then, and you know, then that's the ultimate compliment to the Premier League. I don't think he's going to give anyone that affirmation because I don't think he believes that the Premier League is anything beyond him. So, you know, if there are lots of kind of journalists saying, 
oh, you know, he's been caught out by the Premier League, but the man himself is basically saying, no, it has nothing to do with the fact it's the Premier League. It has to do with a variety of other factors. I'm not sure that we can, like, negate Pep Guardiola's opinion and basically, you know, stick to the narrative of him finding it hard in the Premier League because, you know, arbitrary, Premier League, it's tough. I actually think maybe he's onto something, which is that there's a lot of stuff, you know, he's, he's only been in charge for a few months at Man City and there's a lot of stuff he fundamentally has to change. And really his success or lack of it is not going to be down to the fact that he's playing in the, that he's managing in the Premier League, but just down to the, you know, the actual important factors that matter on the pitch. Like, you know, what, what are his personnel like? You know, can, can, um, can they match up to teams, you know, in terms of like their morale and, and et cetera? You know, I think Everton on the weekend basically just kind of, they were a lot hungrier than, than City's players. And, you know, when it comes down to it, has that got anything to do with the Premier League? Probably not as, you know, as something to do with the situation at Man City. But yeah, Pep has a lot of time to change that basically. And uh, yeah, I, I think that the idea that the Bundesliga and La Liga don't prepare you for managing in uh, the Premier League is probably pretty pretty ridiculous and I think Pep Pep recognizes that basically it's interesting because we've talked before on this show I think specifically about Bob Bradley but more generally about um the fetish fetishization of the English manager in the EPL right and we see this all the time like Crystal Palace brings in Sam Allardyce to rescue them that's not going so well but that was the idea and they had previously brought in Alan Pardew to rescue them that didn't go so well and it's like now Swansea brought in an English manager after failing Bob Bradley, and I don't think that's exactly a coincidence that they that they sought out someone English. And there's been a lot of you know whether or not Bob Bradley being American was a problem, and I think we we kind of con- we kind of came to the conclusion that it was overblown. But there is undeniably this this love of the English manager in the EPL specifically, and I I wonder how much of this is. Well, let, let, let me let me restart. Let me let me say let me start over and say that um, it seems like there's this weird paradox going on where English people want the Premier League to be the best league in Europe, but they also hate the amount of money that's in the Premier League now, and they hate the player wages, and they hate like players coming like and there being fewer English players than ever and there being fewer English managers than ever and that the best managers for the best clubs are not English anymore and it's just so which is it like do they want it to be the best league in the world that draws on talent draws on the best talent from around the world or do they want it to still keep its English roots or is it secret option C where they want the English to be the best at soccer even though they've basically never been the best at soccer soccer since we last had a world war and they just want to return to this fantasy land yeah I I mean I guess it's it's it, there, there, there is a paradox and there's also a confliction and I suppose it's po- probably in some ways reflective of like the modern state of politics as well without getting too into that just in the sense that you know the Premier League's become very globalised and there's you're right it, that has attracted more and more talent and more and more success uh, and but then at the same time there's a lot of people who hark back or feel nostalgic to an era when you know yeah English managers were supreme and English football was supreme and English footballers were the most admired on the continent you know basically I think we should be aiming for I can I I I am completely you know behind the idea of supporting our grassroots game and developing football in Britain just because I think that's one of the key you know aims of having a a league in a, a successful league in any country but um 
Yeah, I mean, at the same time, we we certainly shouldn't be looking down on, um, you know, kind of other managers, like from uh, managers from other countries, or looking down on other football cultures. So, in other words, the kind of the the thing about the Premier League basically being supreme and La Liga and the Bundesliga perhaps being inferior. You know, that's basically the framing of the debate about Guardiola at the moment. And yeah, it's just it's just kind of I don't know. It's based on on pretty kind of small-minded premises i think and and yeah i, I don't know i just i there, there's there is a there is a kind of a point people are making about you know english football having to retain some sort of identity and wanting english players to be successful there's also a lot of people who are invested in the national team obviously so that's that's kind of part of it but yeah i you know the the obsession with english supremacy in all things you know a supreme english league supreme english managers supreme english players is not necessarily a healthy one, I don't think. Like to your point about, you know, grassroots supporting the game at the grassroots level, I'm I've always been fascinated with how much I mean, we have we have a completely different debate about that in the US and we won't even get into it. But when I look at the debate in the UK, it surprises me how much people conflate supporting grassroots game, the game at the lower level, you know, development of, of kids with the top flight league. And I understand that that happens through, you know, academies and such, but the academies are help financially healthy. Like the league is financially healthy. And it surprises me how much the two get conflated as if they're this one in the same. I mean, maybe this is a topic to cover on a different, different podcast episode, but, um, cause it doesn't really have to do with pep much at all, but it, it, that just always has been interesting to me. I mean, basically, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that a lot of people don't realise that, you know, one in 10 or less academy prospects are actually at a Premier League academy and that there are, you know, for every one at a Premier League academy, there's probably nine, you know, or however many at, uh, you know, grassroots level, playing in non-league football, playing for, you know, championship, League One, League Two academies, so, yeah, I mean, the grassroots game extends far beyond the Premier League. Um, in fact, you know, the Premier League is the tip of the iceberg in that sense. And actually, there's a huge amount of untapped talent elsewhere. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the Premier League is is so kind of commercialised that it's no wonder, really, that it grips the kind of collective imagination more so than perhaps kids playing football on, like, muddy pitches on a Sunday. But essentially, that's actually where some of the best footballers are both found and created. So, yeah, we definitely need to think more broadly about that as well. Yeah, in that way, I guess the U.S. and U.K. are similar because a lot of our best talent is not in any official academy because we have the whole pay-for-play system. Uh, we, You know, some South American teams scout for players in the U.S. just on, like, park fields, just looking for Hispanic kids who can't afford to play with their club team, so just kick it about, and they can be quite good, and we lose a lot of talent that way. Um and we deserve to lose it because we're we're we have this capitalist soccer model. Thank you, Chuck Blazer. Um, but we don't need it. I think we'll probably get into that on another episode, perhaps during international breaks and whatnot. But um, returning to Premier League glory, uh, nothing says Premier League glory like Louis Van Hall, who has very. I regret to announce to the Chips podcast listeners that Van Hall has retired. From uh, internet, from managing any soccer team, I suppose. Uh, 
This may come as a surprise to you because he is not currently a manager for anyone and has not been a manager for anyone since May of 2016 when he won the FA Cup with Man United and then got fired like hours after the game so that they could hire uh, Jose Mourinho. Van Hall told a Dutch newspaper called De Telegraph, which I assume is Dutch for the telephone, uh, that he doesn't think he will return to coaching. He thought he was on, he might take a sabbatical and then return, but he has decided, no, he's, he's done. Um, Will, I don't, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I, I saw this last night and I just started laughing because these retirement announcements that come so long after the person last had a job always reek of desperation. Like he, he wants someone to know he still exists. He's not really retiring. He's just reminding people that he's around or he is retiring and he's pissed off that nobody offered him a job. Like it just, it's so, it's such a thirsty move. Uh, what, what do you, what did you make of this? What did you make of this? <laughs> I think, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, I think that's probably quite a harsh assessment. I, I mean, I have been quite critical of Louis van Gaal, um, in recent years, just because, well, you know, when he was at Man United, I basically found that, um, that experienced, I found it funny. Don't get me wrong because I, you know, like any football fan who doesn't support Man United, I found it funny to watch them be rubbish basically. Um, but yeah, no, I certainly, I was spend so much money being garbage too. Yeah, no, anyway, I was, I was definitely very critical of the style in terms of, in terms of what he, uh, is doing with a retirement announcement. I'm sure he would probably take another job in the Dutch league or in Holland if he was offered one. But um, at the same time, he does strike me as the kind of guy who is kind of almost honest to a point of like, it's almost, he's almost perversely honest. Like, you know, to, that was kind of the, um, a lot of a lot of the time that he was at United, he seemed to cause problems and frictions within the squad and the club just by being perversely upfront with people to the point that it was like actually quite detrimental to his to his cause. <laughs> so I think in you know in fairness to him, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would just be um, purely trying to manipulate you know his job conditions by by with a with a kind of grumpy retirement announcement. I imagine that he actually. Is, it does. I mean, apparently it's for family issues and stuff. So I do. I do imagine that he has reasons for doing it, genuine reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, having said that, I would not be that surprised were we to see him in a job in a few years or you know soon, maybe even in like China, because you know if someone offers you a hundred grand a week to go and manage a team in China for a year, why wouldn't you? I just like imagining him walking around whatever. Where is he? He probably lives in Amsterdam or some quaint village outside of Amsterdam or something. I just like imagine him walking around, like going to the grocery store, going to check out, and like you know the the cashier being like, "Okay, that's you know that's thirty four euros," and him being like, "I am retired. I've retired from managing," <laughs> and the cashier just being like, "That's that's great." 34 euros and he's just like smiling back at her and being like i have retired and just like i don't know like he just he strikes i mean this is just like mostly based on his looks alone so it's probably unfair but just like it would it's so easy to imagine him just walking up to strangers and just announcing his retirement to everyone who could possibly listen yeah he is he is a man who it's hard not to imagine that he is fairly full of his own self-importance i think that he is quite uh 
he does high, hold himself in a fairly high regard, I think. But that's that's kind of part of his shtick. I mean, just I mean, on his on his kind of legacy in the Premier League, um, you know, I was I, I found the way that the debate was framed when he was here quite um, quite kind of confusing, really, in that there was a, there were you know there was just a huge amount of debate really over whether or not he was a good manager. And I think the thing is, he's obviously a good manager. You know, he won the Champions League with Ajax. He had kind of massive success with Barcelona, even though it ended in a kind of typically Louis van Gaal way in that he basically stormed out being really Dutch and, you know, upsetting everyone. And then, you know, he um, he had some other successes with like, uh, I think it was AZ Alkmaar. And then obviously he was at Bayern Munich. But by the time he actually was given the Man United job, he had like... You know, Bayern Munich had all gone again, typically Louis van Gaal, and gone quite quite wrong and quite sour, I think. And then he'd spent, you know, several years in international management, which usually heralds the end of a manager's career. You know, you go into international management to kind of see things out because basically the vast majority of your life becomes a huge holiday. And then, you know, you, you'll, you get a squad together for like a really intense month you know, for a tournament or some training or whatever, and then you will just go off again. So I guess it was kind of like he'd almost semi-retired before he even joined Man United. And as such, it was a, I always thought it was a very weird move, kind of not because he wasn't a good manager, but because at that time in his career, a move to a club that was massively hungry, you know, for, for instant success seemed, you know, kind of, I don't know, just a, a very odd fit. Also, it's not like he ever he ever kind of hung his hat on instant, you know, straight, you know, immediate success. He was always a guy to build teams and, you know, promote youth players and stuff. So, yeah, it was all, it was all the real, a, a very much a mess and a, and a kind of chaotic uh, appointment. And, I mean, I suppose the chaos of that is still being felt today because, you know, Man United certainly aren't, um, haven't been going onwards and upwards even after his, uh, after his departure. Yeah, they basically had to reset. Like, they spent... You know, however, I mean, like Mourinho came in and basically spent as much as Van Hall had spent any given transfer window. So it wasn't like he just inherited a similar club. Uh, you know, your point about international management is an interesting one. And something I've often thought about, like, what it's such a crapshoot whether you succeed as an international manager because so much is out of your control. Like, your player pool is restricted. You really just have to work with what you have. And you have to prove yourself in these very small sample size tournaments where you basically can't control that much. And, you know, Van Hall did well at the World Cup in 2014. Like, obviously, the Dutch team did quite well. And it's weird to me that coaches, especially very well-regarded coaches who have a, a tremendous pedigree um, of clubs they've coached at, aren't more selective with the jobs that they take. Because I think it was... Pr- I don't know, maybe this is just hindsight, but it seems to me like it was pretty obvious that Man United wasn't a good fit for the, some of the reasons you just outlined. Like, why aren't, good, why aren't good coaches better at choosing jobs that highlight what they're good at and not choosing jobs that make them look bad? Like, I don't know, it seems like they should care about that. And I know, mu- like, they get paid a shit ton of money and that obviously matters, but... I don't know. It seems like they should be better at knowing when a job is right for them and not. I do. I do know what you mean. I mean, I, I often think that people's, you know, the, the kind of scale of people's ambitions doesn't automatically match the, you know, success they're going to have. Often, quite the opposite. So, you know, just basically going to, a, you know, a, a big club or a big job like Man United arbitrarily is not necessarily a good way to to go about your career. I mean, that said, 
with Louis van Gaal, I imagine he thought he could make a success of it. So I would kind of almost flip it on his head and really ask the question, why did the club think that he was going to be a good fit? Um, I mean, I know at the time that, you know, they perhaps had more limited options. And, you know, again, you're right, there is a heavy dose of hindsight here. But it does just seem like a, it was a strange move. I mean, in terms of Louis van Gaal, if Man United come in and give you an offer, no doubt that is a serious stroke to your ego. So, you know, from there, who knows what kind of decisions you're going to make, you know, regarding your own your own kind of future success. But, I mean, certainly from the United hierarchy and the United board, um, why they went with him over, well, anyone else really is a, is a mystery to me. But I suppose they had their reasons. <laughs> one last one last question on Van Hall, uh, and then we will let him ride off into the good night and never speak of him again. Is the story of him pulling down his pants true? <laughs> I like it that you've like handed that over to me, just so like any legal proceedings can can just be enacted on 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 me. Um, you know, this is like the third time you've brought up the possibility of being sued by someone, and it's just like, <laughs> I are you? Is it really? The, I guess I guess libel laws are a lot worse over there. So they are, no, I I'm, I, it's something that that haunts. The, it's a possibility that haunts my every waking hour. Um, no, I mean I'm only joking. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, he. Uh, is that true? I mean, I've heard that reported and written and printed um, or seen it written and printed in some pretty like mainstream outlets. So I, I'm I personally think it probably has a heavy, <laughs> heavy kind of burden of truth to it. Why don't you tell the good the good listeners of Chips uh, what the story is in case anyone doesn't know? And as a disclaimer to any lawyers listening to this, we are just recounting a story as told by others. We are not uh, necessarily asserting its veracity. No, indeed. Um, allegedly, allegedly and reportedly, those two favorite um, kind of terms for when you're just saying something that you have no idea whether it's true or not. <laughs> they... Um, yeah, well, I think when he was at Bayern Munich, he had a confrontation with his players um, in the dressing room. And uh, the, the basic outshot, uh, out, out, upshot of this was that uh, he allegedly pulled down his trousers and kind of gestured to his um, man, his man parts in a kind of show of braggadocio, like, you know, can anyone challenge my own virility? Um, and... Well, that <laughs> were, the, were those his exact words. Can anyone challenge my own veridity? I like I like the idea that those were his exact words. Although once again, I cannot prove that via you know I certainly couldn't prove that in a court of law. But um, is anyone here more capable of impregnating a female? <laughs> exactly. Who who here can challenge the size of my testicles? Basically, um, yeah. But uh, I think that. Um, you know, that was something that I think was said by some players afterwards. And I think they all fell out with him quite spectacularly. So, you know, who knows whether or not they were just trying to <laughs> embarrass him post Bayern Munich. But uh, yeah, I think either way you can read into it. Either he is the kind of guy to literally show off his balls to um, to kind of make a point. Or he's the kind of guy who upsets people so much that they want to make up a story about him showing off his balls. So, yeah, I think either way you can you can learn something about Louis van Gaal that way. I can't decide which of those realities is the more impressive one. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they're, they're both like, in a way, they're both kind of oddly fitting and kind of endearing in their own weird, twisted way. I can't imagine like if an, a supposed authority figure like showed me his balls, how I would react to that. <laughs> like, it just, I don't know. It just like, it doesn't. 
I don't see how that could possibly be a motivational tool. Like, I feel like that's just really bad coaching, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Notes to the Vice Sports editorial team, you know, yeah, this is not the way to motivate Aaron to do more work, basically. Yeah, I think that's right. Please don't show me your balls to get me to do more work. <laughs> it won't work. I will just I will just be very puzzled and wondering why I've just been shown some balls. <laughs> All right, that's enough ball talk for today. Will, do you have any promotional things to share with the people? Do you want to get them to read any of your any of your work or anything like that? Uh, yeah, no. Yesterday, I uh, published something on a photo book we were sent from. Uh, a West Ham fan uh, that was, they were basically photos of Upton Park before West Ham uh, upped sticks and moved to the, their present home, the London Stadium. So that was pretty pretty cool. I guess that's a good thing to read. And today I wrote something about Jossie's Giants, which was a, a kind of 80s football television show for kids, and uh, which was very, very kind of weird and depressing and gives a good insight into the British psyche circa the late 80s. So, yeah, read that, basically. Cool. Um, Upton Park. I'm sad I never got to go there, to be perfectly honest. I feel like I really missed out never having gone to a game there. Yeah, I think my my one trip there was last season, uh, and it was the last game, and there was kind of like a mini... I, a, a riot is too strong a word, but a kind of civic disturbance... <laughs> And uh, there was, I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of like the, the Man United coach got its windows smashed with a bottle and there was just general yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of punch ups and fights. And yeah, it was a pretty exciting kind of one single trip by which to remember the ground by. So yeah, I mean, I think I've seen it possibly at its best and worst all in one evening. So yeah, yeah, it's a good place. I don't condone civic disturbances, but I do feel like they add necessary atmosphere to a to a soccer match and it's just i don't know i i'm i shouldn't say that like people people being people being like violent and on and like mean towards each other i shouldn't i shouldn't be saying that i like it but i don't know it makes me feel alive they're all part of the rich tapestry of a football grounds kind of aura aren't they like you're right we obviously we obviously can't condone such terrible behavior but at the same time, it thrills us to our very cause. So, like, when, you know, Yankee Stadium, like, the old Yankee Stadium, I used to go to games there a fair amount, and I would sit in the bleachers because that's where all the, like, all the total assholes sit and just do awful, chant and <laughs> do awful things to each other. And I just, I loved it. Like, if you wanted to go somewhere where you could be, like, pretty awful to another human being but not physically assault them and know that there was lots of security around to protect you in case somebody else assaulted you, that you went to a baseball game. And I liked that. And I did and said lots of horrible things there. Um, and then they moved into their new stadium and suddenly none of that was allowed anymore. Um, the first and the first time I went to a game at the U new Yankee Stadium – I was sitting near this guy who looked and all who had like an Elvis hairdo and I didn't really like like he was another Yankee fan. I didn't really care that he existed, but he was a goofy looking guy. And like there were the opposing pitcher was named David Price. And the he spent in the entire first half inning shouting at this dude, The price is wrong, David. 
it, like <laughs> just the dumbest fucking thing and he just wouldn't stop shouting it at him like literally after every single pitch and it just became too much and and I just yelled at him like he was like three rows away and I just yelled hey shut up Elvis and so then he shut up and I was like okay we're done like this well, thank god I can just watch the baseball game now five minutes later a security staff came to me and kicked me out for yelling at that guy. <laughs> Which, like, I, I, I've i been to one Yankee game since, and I didn't say a single fucking thing. I was just going with a friend. But that was when I was like, I'm not going to Yankee games anymore, really. Because if I can't shout something at a dude who looks like Elvis and is annoying the fuck out of me, then baseball games have nothing for me anymore. So, I don't know. That's why I, like, I wish... That's why I'm... That's why I don't condone civic disturbances, but I also think you should be able to piss off other humans and settle it in a way in which the both of you think best. I don't know. I'm kind of like, I don't know, old school like that, I guess. Yeah, you think that political correctness has ruined the Yankees, basically. Is it even like political correctness shouting at a dude that he looks like Elvis? Like, I feel like that's not really like, it's not like I shouted some racial epithet or anything like that. I just made an observation about his looks, which, by the way, was an objectively correct observation. Yeah, libtards and cucks have ruined ruined the Yankees, basically. Thank you for listening to Chip's podcast today. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just, it, it is like, I will fully admit that, you know, sometimes I do, like, especially with sports, I want them to be a little bit of a rough, not rough, but like, you know, I want, I want the environment to still have heft to it. Like I still want fans to be fans, but at the same time, I don't want people to be awful to each other. So it's like there, there is a tension there and I fully admit it and I haven't come to a conclusion on what I think it should be. Um, but I think if people feel offended or whatever, getting the other person kicked out is maybe not the best way to handle it. I fully agree. Um, but yeah, no, next time you come to London, let's uh, let's go to the London Stadium and see what the atmosphere there is like, because by all accounts this season, it has in its own way at times been quite, um, quite sort of robust. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Upton Park sounds a little bit like what you described, but without the security or <laughs> the guarantees of physical safety. Perfect. So, I mean, let's see whether London Stadium can uh, reproduce that that same kind of frisson of danger. All right. Well, if you've made it this long through the podcast, uh, we appreciate it. And you can uh, interact with us in a social manner. I promise I won't shout, shut up Elvis at you. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Chips Podcast. You can email us at chips at vicesports.com. We would love to hear from you. If you ask us a good question, we will uh, respond to it on the air. If you ask us a bad question, we'll probably still respond to it on the air. Uh, it doesn't have to be about soccer either, to be perfectly honest. Um, it can be about what Will's favorite beer is, and then I will just turn off my mic and let him talk for 45 minutes. <laughs> will, do you have any final remarks for the people? No, uh, merely to, to tune in next week and enjoy more of our irreverent musings. Indeed. Have a good week, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.